Amen. Well, you guys can take a seat. Like I said earlier, my name is Josh Miller, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're a guest with us, I just want to give you a special shout out. We're thrilled that you're here. Um, please do me a favor, stop by the first time guest tent on your way out so that we can follow up with you this week and just give you a small gift to say, hey, thanks for being with us on this Sunday. Um, I wasn't able to be here last week, and if you were here, we had a cold hit my family kind of last second, and so I had to record the sermon, and everything's fine, and all the tests came back negative, and we're good, but last weekend made me realize how much I love getting to gather together with you to worship, and my family watched the 4 p.m. live stream, and, and I experienced what I think many of us know intuitively, which is this, that the live stream is a nice supplement, but it is no substitute for in-person worship. It's a nice supplement if you're sick or if you can't be here, but it's just no substitute for in-person worship. So I'm so excited to be back with you all. And I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to make church a priority in your life in this season. The way that the world is right now, you just can't expect to be spiritually healthy if you're in church once or twice a month. Just with everything that we have going on, we need the gathering of God's people to strengthen us, to remind us that we have a rock and a foundation that is strong, even in the midst of a world that feels like it is shaking and it is falling apart. So I just want to encourage you to, to make church a priority in your schedule. It doesn't have to be this church. It can be a different church, but just make church a priority in your schedule for your own spiritual health. And I also just want to look right at the camera and talk to the folks that would love to be here, but because of medical reasons can't be. And I just want to tell you that we love you and that we miss you and that we haven't forgotten about you and that we cannot wait for the day for you to be able to be back with us in person. I know that you feel the same way. So what we're going to do right now, I know we just prayed, but you can never pray too much in church, right? We're just going to pray again for the folks in our church family that can't be here for medical reasons that God would encourage them in this season. Would you just pray, pray with me for that? Father, we, we pray for those who, because of medical reasons, can't gather with us right now. God, we know that, that the, the gathering of the church is one of the primary ways you strengthen your people and that they are not able to in, engage with that. And so, Lord, we just pray in a special way that you would encourage them, that you would bless them, and that, God, you would speed the day that they can come and be back with us in person. And until that day, Lord, sustain them and strengthen them and help us all in these very strange times. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're looking at a text that is all about one thing. It's about God's promises intersecting with real human problems, okay? It's about the promises of God coming down, descending, and intersecting with the real problems of human life that you and I experience, right? And for that reason, this text is very relevant for all of us today because we all have problems, right? We all have problems. We have, man, class problems, and we have work problems, and we have marriage problems, and we have money problems, right? Problems take up a lot of our emotional bandwidth, right? Problems are what keep you up at night when you lay your head down on the pillow and your mind races around and around and around, isn't it? It's the thing that gives you that pit in your stomach when you wake up in the morning because the problem is still there. You see, there is no question that we care about our problems, but the question is, does God care about our problems? There's no question that we care about our problems. It's what we spend most of our time dealing with. It's what takes up the vast majority of our emotional bandwidth. There's no question that we care. The question is, does God care? Is God aware of the tension in your marriage? Is God aware that you charged all of your bills last month? Is God aware of the anxiety that you feel at work? Is God concerned that you have a child with special needs? You are very aware of your problems. You go to bed thinking about them and you wake up feeling them. But the question is, does God care? Or to put it another way, do God's promises ever intersect with your problems? 
Does what is true about God ever come down and intersect with the problems that you have in your life? And some people say no. They say no, and that's why I have no time for religion, because religion is just all these propositional truths up here in the clouds, and they never, it never makes any difference in my real life. Now, if you're a Christian or if you grew up in church, you might not go that far. But if we're honest with ourselves, we often live like practical atheists. What do I mean by that? I mean that we trust God with our eternal life, but we don't go to him with the problems of our real life. We trust for eternity, but not for this Tuesday. And we tell on ourselves, do you know how we tell on ourselves? It's through our coping mechanisms. When we have problems, rather than going to God, you know where we go? A number one from Chick-fil-A. Give me that fried food, baby. Right? Where do we go? We go to WebMD, right? Because that's ever helped anyone, right? Where do we go? We go to Netflix. I can't deal with this. Let me just binge watch The Crown, right? We tell on ourselves through our coping mechanisms that maybe we trust God for our eternal life, but we don't think that God is concerned with or has any ability to help us with the problems of our daily life. And so what I want to do today is I want to ask one fundamental question. Usually I give you all kinds of points. We're not doing that today. One fundamental question. Here's the question I'm going to drive at. Does God care about your problems? Does God care about your problems, your Tuesday problems? Not only your big spiritual problems, but the problems that you have on Thursday morning. Does God care about the things that keep you up at night? Does he care about the things that give you anxiety? Does God care about your problems? And I'll give you some practical stuff along the way, but I want to focus in on that one question, and here's why. If you become convinced that God doesn't care about your problems, then you shouldn't bother with Christianity. Right? If, if, you don't, if you don't think God cares about your problems, then what good is Christianity? But if you become convinced that God does care about your problems, your actual life problems, that the omnipotent creator of the universe who holds the cosmos together actually cares about what you have going on in your life, then I'm convinced it's going to change fundamentally how you relate to him and how you relate to the problems that you encounter. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 21 where God's promises are going to intersect with the problems of three very real people. And along the way, I'm going to ask the question, does God's promises interact with our problems as well? And so if you have a Bible, meet me in Genesis chapter 21, starting in verse 1. It says this, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Now, if you haven't been with us during the Abraham series, this is a very confusing place to start, right? You're like, who is Sarah? Why is she having a baby? What are we talking about? So here's, here's what's going on. Sarah was married to a man named Abraham, and they'd been infertile their entire life. They hadn't been able to have kids. They really wanted kids, but they couldn't have them. But back in Genesis chapter 12, God appeared to them and made them this just incredible promise. He said, I'm going to give you so many descendants that you're not going to be able to number them. And I'm going to form a special relationship with your descendants. I'm going to be their God, and they're going to be my people. And I'm going to form what the Bible calls a covenant with them. And your family is going to bring hope and blessing to all the nations of the earth. So God makes him this incredible promise. And then he reaffirmed the promise in chapter 13, and in chapter 15, and in chapter 17, and in chapter 18. God keeps making this promise to Abraham and Sarah, but there's one big problem they keep not having a baby. And you can't have descendants that outnumber the stars without one descendant to start. 
For 25 years, God affirmed this promise and nothing changed. Do you know how long 25 years is? 25 years ago was 1995. Most of you weren't alive in 1995. Let me prove to you how long ago that was. Do you know what the top song was in 1995? Gangster's Paradise by Coolio. Followed closely by Waterfalls by TLC. All right? Some of you are like, who are those people? You know, like that is how long ago 25 years was. It has been 25 years since God made the promise. And to make matters worse, Sarah is no spring chicken. She was 65 when God made the promise. And now she's 90, 90 years old. And there's this incredible tension that's been present in the narrative so far. Here's the tension. Is God faithful? Does God keep his promises or is he a liar? He keeps making this promise to Sarah and Abraham. I'm going to descend into your suffering and into your longing and into your problem, and I'm going to do something about it. He keeps affirming this promise, and nothing changes. Abraham and Sarah watch their friends have grandkids, and they can't even have kids. Year after year, negative pregnancy test after negative pregnancy test, they just watch their dream of a family dissolve and float away. And Every year, it looks less and less likely that God is going to keep his promise. Every year, it, le- it looks less and less like you can trust God. And isn't that often what happens when we wait? Isn't that fundamentally the question that all of us have to wrestle with at some level is, can I trust God? Can I trust what God says in his word? Can I trust that God's ways are best for me? Can I trust that what God says about relationships or education or career or sexuality is really what's best for me? Or... Is God not trustworthy? Well, that is the tension that the author of Genesis has been developing for all these chapters. And then finally, in verse 1 of chapter 21, he resolves the tension in the most supernatural and sensational way. And God and the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. At 90 years old, folks, Sarah has a baby. And what I love about this text is you see that phrase, at the time, you see that in there, at the time that God had said, that's the Hebrew word, moed. All right, let's all say that together. You ready? Moed. One more time. Ready? Moed. You've now learned a Hebrew word. Good for you. You know, you can, you can break that out at some point. The word moed in Hebrew doesn't just mean random time. It means an appointed time. It means an appointed time, which means that God's timing on this baby wasn't random. God's timing on this baby was particular and was intentional and was appointed. God wasn't late. God caused Sarah to have this child exactly when he intended to. One of my favorite scenes uh, from the Lord of the Rings movie, if you guys are fans, is when Gandalf the wizard shows up in the Shire and Frodo says to him, you are late. And Gandalf looks at him with these really bushy eyebrows and he says, a wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he intends to. That is how it is with God. God is never late. He is never early. He arrives and he acts in your life and in Sarah's life precisely when he intends to. But it's very difficult to believe in those moments, isn't it? It's very difficult to understand God's timing sometimes. And what I've heard it said before is that God's timing hardly ever makes sense through the windshield of your life, but sometimes it makes sense through the rearview mirror. I remember in college, a girl broke up with me and I was very devastated by that. And I remember having kind of a whiny night, you know, and I'm like, why God, you know, this whole thing. Um, And in the moment, I didn't understand, you know, it didn't seem to make sense to me. But little did I know the next semester, I would start dating my wife. 
right? So through the windshield, it made no sense to me. And yet in the rearview mirror, I think, oh, God actually knew what he was doing, right? And I'm really grateful that he didn't answer my prayers that night. Like, let me be back with her, you know? So for some of you that are praying for a spouse, God is being gracious and telling you no right now, okay? He's like, it would not work out well. Okay, so at the very right time, the appointed time, God visited Sarah and he did for, for her what he had said he would do. He descended into her problems. He descended into her longing and grief and he changed things. He brought hope, right? So we know from this text that at the very least, God cared about Sarah's problems. We're not sure he cares about yours yet, but he cared about Sarah's. But before we move on, I want to talk real briefly about, about something that just happened in this text. Let's be honest. A 90-year-old woman just had a baby, okay? I don't know if you know many 90-year-old women. They don't typically have babies, okay? The retirement home does not often become the maternity ward. That's just, that doesn't happen. They don't have those in retirement homes, right? So can we even take this text seriously, right? Or do we have to sort of check our intellect at the door when we come to the Bible? Well, it, it depends entirely on your worldview, so if you don't believe in a God, if you, if you believe that all there is is natural causes, all there is is what we can measure in a laboratory, then you can't take this text seriously because we all know that 90-year-old women don't have babies. It's not biologically possible. So if that's your worldview, then you can't take this seriously. But I will say that if that's your worldview, you actually have a long list of other problems that you're going to have to deal with, such as where did everything come from? You might say, well, the Big Bang. I'd say, well, where did the material come from for the Big Bang? Or how about this? Why do you have any meaning or purpose in life? If we're all just the product of random chance, why would you have any meaning and purpose in life? If everything is going to end and there's no soul, there's no spirit, there's no eternity, there's just what is, and you're just going to turn into dirt, and then eventually the sun's going to burn out and everything is going to die and no one's going to remember anything. That's pretty bright, right? What, like, what purpose is there in doing anything? Or how about this? This is, hits close to home. If we got here through survival of the fittest, through the strong trampling on the weak, then why would we stop? Why would we be so concerned about oppression? Why would we be so concerned about marginalized people? If, if that's how we got here, it just makes sense that that's what would continue to happen. And yet deep in our soul, we know that's not right. So if you don't believe in God, you know, you, you can't take this seriously, but you do have some other problems. But if you do believe in God, if you believe that it's reasonable to assume that someone created the very first matter, that there is meaning and purpose in life because God has created it, that, that this isn't all that there is, that, that things like love and things like loyalty and things like beauty are real things. They're not just sort of creations of our chemistry. If you believe there's a God who created the cosmos and the natural order of the world, then it is entirely reasonable to believe that that same God, for his purposes, could at times supersede natural law. I mean, he created it, right? So he can supersede it, which is precisely what Christians believe about this story that in a supernatural, miraculous way, God allowed a 90-year-old woman to have a child, which is why Isaac is in every single sense a miracle baby. Okay, so after 25 years of waiting, God kept his promise. Abraham and, and Sarah finally got what they wanted, and I love how they respond. Look at verse 3. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So what should you do when you get what you want? What should you do when you get the job or you get the spouse or you get the house or you get into the grad program? 
You should do what Abraham and Sarah did. You should glorify God through obedience and thanksgiving. In Genesis chapter 17, God said to Abraham, I want you to do two things when you have this child. I want you to name him Isaac, and I want you to circumcise him. I want you to set him apart as part of my covenant people. And so that's what Abraham did. He responded to God's faithfulness with obedience. And that's a good word for us. When we see God be faithful in our lives, it should motivate us to trust him. And I love what Sarah did. Sarah just sort of like had a worship service. She was just like, I'm gonna get my worship on, right? Like she was all excited and she's laughing and giggling. She's saying like, who would have thought that I would have a baby and yet here my baby is. It's just a good reminder that we should be grateful for the things that God has given us in our lives. The book of James says, do not be deceived brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of the heavenly lights. So that means if you have a good friendship, thank God for it. If you have a good roommate, thank God for it. If you're at a good school or if you have a good job, thank God for it. If you're in good health or you're back in good health, thank God for it. If you're in bad health, but you have a good hospital, thank God for it. There is no quicker way to become entitled than to stop thanking God for the many, many things he's brought into our lives. So when God gives you the thing, when you get the thing you've been longing for, it is appropriate like Abraham and Sarah to respond in obedience and in thanksgiving. But unfortunately, just as God descended into Sarah's problem, And just as his promise intersected Sarah's problem and resolved it, another problem developed, which is true to life, isn't it? Feels like you fix one problem, you resolve one problem, and you walk right into the next. Look at verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on that day, on the day that Isaac was weaned. You see, many children, unfortunately, didn't live past infancy in those days. And so it was a big deal when your child was weaned because it meant that they had survived. They were probably going to make it to adulthood. And so you throw a big party. So that's what Abraham is doing. He's gathering everybody from all around. He's throwing a big party for his son, Isaac. And, and included in that would have been his second wife, Hagar, and his teenage son, Ishmael. He said, Ishmael? I thought you said he didn't have any kids. Well, he didn't have any kids with Sarah. But a couple of chapters ago, Abraham got tired of waiting on God's timing. He got tired of waiting on God's moed. So he decided to create his own Moed, and he slept with his servant Hagar, and they, she conceived and had a baby named Ishmael, and at this point, Ishmael was about 14 years old, okay? Well, I don't know if you've ever been a part of a blended family before like I have, but blended families tend to have a lot of trouble, right? There tends to be a lot of rivalry and envy and frustration and hurt and pain, and, and we're going to see that in Abraham's family. Look at verse 9. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. So Ishmael was a teenager at this point. You have to remember, he'd been the only child of a very rich man for his entire life, right? He's the kind of guy with eight pairs of Jordans in his closet, okay? He had all the new gaming systems. He drove a Range Rover at 16, okay? That is who he was, and now all of a sudden, he's not the main show anymore. All of a sudden, Isaac is here. Isaac is getting all the limelight. Isaac is getting all the attention, and you can sort of understand how Ishmael became bitter and frustrated, and that word in your Bible, laughing, is the Hebrew word for mocking or scorning. So at the the party for Isaac, Ishmael is with his friends making fun of baby Isaac, degrading the star of the party. And Sarah sees this happening and she flies off the handle. The tension between Sarah and Hagar and their two families that had been under the surface, kind of boiling like it so often is in blended families, comes to a boiling point. And Sarah goes to Abraham and says, that's it. It's either me or it's her. 
I'm drawing a line in the sand. And she says, if you want me to stick around, you need to cast Hagar out, which was the ancient equivalent of divorce. Cast her out of your household. Don't give her any food. Don't give her any money. Cast her out. And she said, in addition to that, I want you to take Ishmael off the will. He shall not inherit with my son Isaac. You see that? I mean, she throws down the gauntlet and she says, I don't want anything to do with that woman or her child. And Abraham finds himself in this really painful predicament. I mean, he'd been married to Hagar for 14 years. Ishmael was his only son. And now Sarah is saying, get rid of them. If you want me around, you need to get rid of them. You ever seen the show, The Brady Bunch? You guys remember The Brady Bunch? I've read an article that said The Brady Bunch was the worst television show of all time. I thought that was a little harsh, but anyway, the, the Brady Bunch is very, um, it's not very realistic, and here's why. Um, you, have, you have the mom, the dad, Mike and uh, Carol Brady, they get together, they're both widows, and they each have three kids, and so they blend their family together, and, you have, and that's how you get the Brady Bunch, and in episode one, there's like this tension around being step-siblings, and there's rivalry and stuff, and then like Mike Brady, at one point in the episode, goes, the only steps in this house are the steps leading up to the second floor, you know, and it's like, Everything is solved, right? And all of a sudden, there's like nothing but family bliss for five seasons of the Brady Bunch, right? And if you've been part of a blended family, you just know that is not realistic, right? That is not how it goes. Most often, it goes like this, not like the Brady Bunch. So Abraham stuck, and it says that he was very distressed, which means he was being torn apart. I mean, physically, think about it. He's got these two women that he's married to, two children, and they're now saying you can't have both of us. He's being torn apart. And if you've ever been stuck between two people that you love, that you care about, you know how painful this is. It displeased him greatly. He knew that if he cast out Hagar and Ishmael, they would likely die. I mean, it's hard to be a single mom today. It was extremely hard to be a single mom then. And yet Sarah's saying, if you don't get rid of them, you can forget me. And he's in this predicament. He's in this problem, a problem of his own making, but a problem nonetheless, a dysfunctional family like so many of us have experienced. And in this moment, God once again intercepts the problem with his promise. Look at verse 12. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So God told Abraham to do what Sarah had said, not because Sarah was righteous in saying it, but because it was theologically accurate. The covenant of God, the promise of God was going to go with the miracle child. And so it was right and it was appropriate for Hagar and Ishmael to depart from the household. God hadn't desired this to be the case, but Abraham had created this by trying to force the issue and sleep with Hagar. And now poor Hagar and Ishmael are caught in the crossfire and Abraham doesn't know what to do and he's being torn apart by this decision. And in that moment, God intercepts his problem with a promise. And he says, Abraham, it's okay. Send them away. You can't provide for them and you can't protect them anymore, but I can and I will. God's promises intersected Abraham's problems. So, so far, we know God cared about Sarah's problems. We know God cared about Abraham's problems. But did God care about Hagar's problems? Or is she just going to be cast out like so many people, suffering and abandoned because of the choices of someone else? Let's keep reading. Verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, 
She put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as, she, and, and as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. So Hagar left Abraham's household. She was trying to head back to Egypt where she was from, maybe find some distant relatives that would take her in. And we don't know if she got lost or had bad directions, but as they're walking through this wilderness area, they run out of water. And if you've ever been in a really, really hot, dry place, if you run out of water, it gets bad really quickly. And by verse 15, Hagar was completely hopeless. She had her son sit under the shade of this bush, and she said, just sit there. I'm going to go about 100 yards away. And she just sat down completely overwhelmed and couldn't do anything but weep. Ever felt like that before? You just can't go on. You've got nothing. You just, you just sit and weep. Hagar was totally hopeless, utterly hopeless. She had been abandoned. She was suffering for no fault of her own. And she's sitting here weeping, about to die, about to watch her precious son die when once again God intervened in the story. Verse 17, and God heard the voice of the boy. So God visited Sarah, God spoke to Abraham, and now God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. There's that promise. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So God visited Sarah, God spoke to Abraham, and God heard the voice of the boy. In her darkest hour, when she was completely hopeless, God descended into Hagar's problems. He descended into her suffering and he brought her hope. He opened her eyes so that she could see a well of water. Was it like a miracle well? Was it there before? We don't know. We just know that before God appeared to her, she had no hope, and afterwards, she did. She and her son went, and they got a drink from the well, and they filled up their skin of water, and they were able to make it to their destination. They got back towards Egypt, and they settled down. Ishmael become, became an expert huntsman. Man, she got him a, a wife from Egypt, and he became the father of a great nation what the Bible calls the Ishmaelites later on. You see, in her darkest hour when she had no ability to help herself, God descended into Hagar's problems and her misery and her suffering and her promise intercepted her problem. His promise intercepted her problem. So from this chapter, we know obviously that God cared at least about Sarah and about Abraham and about Hagar. But this, the question still is, does God care about you and me? Because let's be honest, this is a sensational chapter, isn't it? It's full of God supernaturally descending into people's lives and solving their problems. A miracle baby and a miracle well. But you see, this chapter is not just a sensational story about God's grace to these three people in history. This story is a pattern. It's a pattern of how God works in the world and in our lives. It's a pattern that we see repeated throughout Scripture. We see it in Sarah and Abraham and Hagar. We see it in Moses at the Red Sea. We see it in Joshua at the walls of Jericho. We see it in David on the battlefield with Goliath. We see it in Jesus's life at the wedding that ran out of wine, for the crowd that ran out of food, and for the bleeding woman that ran out of hope. You see, you and I sit here and we read the Bible and we say, well, that's great for them, but how do I know God is going to intersect my problems with his promise? And my answer is that he already has. 
2,000 years ago in the town of Bethlehem. Friends, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, where Jesus descended from heaven and he took on flesh, is the ultimate instance of God's promise intersecting the problems of our world. The incarnation is a resounding declaration that God cares about your problems. Why do we know God cared about Sarah? Because he showed up. Why do we know that God cares about Abraham? Because he showed up. Why do we know that God cared about Hagar? Because he showed up. And why do we know that God cares about you and about me? Because Jesus Christ showed up. Friends, Jesus left his throne in heaven. He took on flesh. He lived a life of poverty. He endured the slander of his enemies and the betrayal of his friends. He died an excruciating death on the cross. He was sealed in the tomb. Three days later, he resurrected supernaturally in victory. And 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection is one long, resounding declaration that God cares about you. It is unreasonable to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and yet not believe that God cares about you. You see, because of the work of Jesus Christ, if you are in him, if you are a child of God through repentance and faith, Genesis chapter 21 is a pattern of how God works in your life. Here's what that means. It means if you are infertile, God may not give you a child, but one day every one of your deepest longings will be satisfied in his presence. If you're lonely and you're single and you're desiring a husband, it is not a promise that God will give you a husband, but it is a promise that one day you will be united to Christ who is the perfect spouse. If you are overwhelmed with anxiety and worry about your life, it is not a promise that God will resolve every single issue in your life, but it is a promise that one day you will dwell in a place of such peace and such security and such joy that you will never struggle with worry and anxiety again. If you are struggling with chronic pain or a negative health diagnosis, it is not a promise that God will reach down and heal everything that is wrong with you. But it is a promise that one day you will receive a resurrected body that will no longer feel the effects of sin, that will no longer feel the sting of death. Friends, the incarnation is a long, resounding declaration that God cares about you and God cares about your problems. So my one exhortation today, my one application for you today from Genesis chapter one is simply this, believe. Believe. Let what you believe in your head move to your heart and start living like the God of all creation who holds the cosmos together is, in, is invested in your life and cares about your problems. Not just your big problems, but your problems with your roommates and your problems romantically and your financial problems and your health problems and your work problems and the anxiety that you feel about all the things going on in your life and in the world. If you don't believe in Christianity, I respect that. But it is unreasonable to believe in Christianity and yet hold the ridiculous belief that God would give his only son to die for the sins of the world and then be completely unconcerned about the world that he paid such an incredible price to redeem. So friends, let us be done. Let us be done with the belief from the pit of hell that God sent Jesus to die for you, but doesn't care about your life. My encouragement to you today is that God cares about you. Would you pray with me? Father, what a privilege, what good news that you are not just high and mighty, wise and powerful, but that you are close to us. You are Emmanuel, God 
with us. Father, that's a precious truth. That is the radical claim of Christianity that you are both high and almighty, that you are holy and distinct from us, and yet, and yet you are concerned. God, you are concerned for Sarah and Abraham and Hagar, and you are concerned for us. So Lord, would you give each one of us here tonight faith, faith to believe, to believe and to live like that is true. And I pray that that would change how we relate to you, God, that we would go to you with our problems. We would go to you with our suffering. We would go to you with our insecurities and our fears. And we would find hope. God, give us faith to believe and help it to change how we live today. We love you. Amen.